This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. But yeah, Jay's looking at me through the glass and I'm like, no, you go, man. You're in charge. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Thanks for joining us on this first Tuesday for us of 2024. Uh, It is the 9th of January today. We're talking about the state of social media, what the future might hold, because holy cow, who knows? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, there was this idea that, you know, the Internet was just one big thing and we were all going to be together on the Internet, but not so. So now it's this idea that the internet has become so fragmented that it's hard really to tell what's going on in on the web what's going on on the web yes which might be a symptom maybe of the end of social media as we know it which is something we've kind of been talking about as we watched the uh steady destruction of the entity formerly known as Twitter over the last year or so. Anyway, here to break this down and talk about the broader implications of this is Charlie Warzel, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So what do you think? Is is social media as we know it dying? Or as we knew it, I guess, past tense, if it is dying? I, I think it is as we knew it. Um, mm. But that's not to say that the internet isn't getting larger every day. In fact, you and I, all of us, we... Every day we live on uh, the largest version of, you know, connected humanity that has ever existed. It's it's kind of amazing in that in that regard. And so things are getting bigger. There is more content. There is, you know, there are more subcultures and niches, memes, whatever uh, ev- happening and proliferating every day. But they're increasingly siloed. They're, uh, things are happening across a, you know, a wider array of platforms and it's um, it's very difficult now to sort of take the temperature of all of it or to feel like there is a singular conversation that you can plug into. And so there's this this weird feeling, especially I think for, you know, people who uh, scour the Internet like a lot of journalists to, you know, try to take the pulse of, of, of the world. Uh, there's this weird feeling of disorientation. So let me put you on the spot. Give me a value judgment. Is that good or bad? I think it is good for certain things, right? I think it's good in the sense that we we don't it makes it harder to, you know, over-index something, right? Or to or to feel like you are um that there's only one conversation because I think this was a problem especially for journalists using Twitter. Um it was a place where mm. news was made, but it was also a place where all these people who are, you know, kind of involved in making the news and sort of setting, you know, agendas and narratives, yeah. uh, it gave people this sense that that there was really, you know, one story. And there was a lot of people sort of chasing, you know, their own tales around one subject. But on the other side, I think when things are fragmented in this way, um, it, it makes it really hard to tell what is popular, right? We use these terms like, you know, went viral. But um, on this type of internet, that is fragmented, it's starting to lose a little bit of its meaning. When you say viral, do you mean 500,000 people saw something or 200 million? Uh, it, it's it's mm-hmm. very difficult. And so I think we we lose our ability to, to understand 
and, and perceive what is really a trend, what is really popular. And that has significant political and cultural implications. Like what? So I think a great example of this, it, it happened in November. Um, there, were, there were these reports that uh, teens on TikTok were um, all flocking to uh, this old letter that Osama bin Laden wrote justifying the 9-11 yeah, attacks. And the 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 narrative around this was, you know, like leftist teens on TikTok are falling in love with Osama bin Laden, and it it caused you know a lot of people to say like, what what is happening? What is happening to you know to the you know the youth of the world? Um, and and it was this this trend that was supposed to mark a you know a radical departure for a new generation politically. Uh, and it turns out that it was mostly manufactured. I mean, there were, there certainly were people who were discovering this letter and saying, wow, it's really interesting that, you know, what he was writing in 2001, 2002, uh, you know, has a lot of uh, shades of conversations that we're having today about the Middle East. That was sort of the, mm-hmm. the focus of that. And it got blown out of proportion and kind of cherry-picked by both journalists and and people who were looking to stoke outrage as this major trend. Uh, ter- and, and it turns out that, you know, compared to most TikTok trends, it was really a drop in the bucket. And so I think this is a good example of how when you don't have a kind of centralized conversation and when you have all these new emergent platforms like TikTok, right, that they don't go by the usual, you know, I follow you account. It, it's, it's, it's an algorithmic recommendation feed. When you have things like that, uh, it you have all these these siloed internet experiences. It's really hard for people to assess on the fly whether something like that Osama bin Laden letter trend was real, or whether you know it was being used by some people to advance a particular argument or ideology. And I think that that will happen more and more. I think you know that is when we look towards the twenty twenty four election here in the states. I think that that is something we're going to see a lot is people finding something in a small corner of the Internet and and blowing it up to make it seem like it's a huge trend when maybe it's not. Well, since you mentioned the 2024 election, which uh, certainly, you know, the three of us and a lot of people in our line of work are are, uh, unable to shake, even though we may want to from our minds. (laughs) um, I direct you to the headlines of The New York Times right now online. Elections and disinformation are colliding like never before in 2024. So what does the fragmentation of social media, whether it's TikTok or Truth Social or whatever Twitter used to be or Blue Sky or honestly, I've lost track. (laughs) What does that fragmentation mean for the, the fight against disinformation? Well, I think it means that there it's going to it's going to be a lot harder for, you know, the traditional kind of fact checks to to take place, right? Like mm. if something is happening in a corner of the internet that you don't really understand, uh if you're, you know, a researcher or or a journalist trying to, you know, suss something out, it, it may be more difficult for you to, you know, parse through either the layers of irony or um, you know, inscrutable memes or or what have you, right? Um so I think that there's ways which in which you know, well-intentioned people just trying to suss out the truth will be either led astray or confused or make that process harder. But I also think something that we see so much now online, especially um, conducted by a lot of you know right-wing influencers, is they will go on a place like TikTok and they will you know either search a hashtag or they will kind of set their feed up in order for it to, you know, recommend them 
videos of, you know, let's say the, you know, the outrageous left uh, or something like that. And they will cherry pick instances of information from one of these, right. you know, siloed corners of the internet. And it will, it, I think the effect that we will see is that regular people are going to be dragged into this, into the, you know, the spotlight, the political spotlight, much more than they were before. Because on a place like Twitter or Facebook that's a little more centralized, it's really sort of easy to reverse engineer and mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. you know what, that's a that's a kid in, you know, Peoria. Like there's they're, they're not they don't have any political influence, you know, let's let's ignore this. But I think I think we're going to see a lot more, you know, civilians uh, kind of get thrust into the spotlight in a in a troubling way. With so much fragmentation and conversations happening in all these different silos, what what is the average person to do here? Right, if you right, right. want to talk to your neighbor, to your family member about what's going on in our country, you're looking at completely different sets of information. Like, what is what's somebody to do here? Well, I I, I think that you know, hopefully, there will be less of a reliance on you know getting news inside of inside of these these social networks and I, I don't mean to be naive I, I think you know people are are you know kind of chained to the internet and and there are a lot of you know habits that have been formed over the last few years but I, I do think it's it's there is in some way uh, a positive to not having a a centralized conversation I think I think it makes the business of you know reading the news trickier and harder but I also think you know, there's a lot of people like let's just take Twitter over the last year who have seen you know what has happened to the social network under Elon Musk disagreed with the direction that it's gone in and gotten off of the platform and as such you know a lot of those people have told me these are you know regular people or friends of mine or or colleagues mm-hmm. in in the media that their information environment has become less chaotic as a result. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, th- mm-hmm. in one way you could see that as, oh, I, you know, I'm not getting as many points of view. But it, in some ways it's ejecting from a filter bubble or ejecting from a, a relatively toxic information environment. So to the extent that, you know, that this these information ecosystems are fragmented, it doesn't always mean that they're bad. It might also, it might mean that, um, you know, people aren't uh, sort of, Going through the the gamification of news, right, <laughs> or the or like the the hobbyist, uh, you know, political news watching that we so many people went through, you know, between twenty fifteen and twenty twenty. I, I I think that um, it's a weird thing to say, but I think that this fragmentation ultimately could lead people to consume information in a in a in a more healthy way, hmm. perhaps. Here's hope. Optimism springs eternal. Let's go with that. Uh, Love ending it on an up note. Uh, Charlie Warzel, a staff writer at The Atlantic, has a couple of really cool pieces on what's happening with social media. We'll have them in the show notes. Thank you so much. Charlie, thanks a bunch. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so, (laughs) excuse me. (laughs) My goodness, it got me all choked up. No, I'm kidding. Uh, So, interesting. Uh, So, two things. One, so... As we talked about, as I talked about yesterday, Monday, mm-hmm. uh, I'm back on Twitter. And the reason I'm back on Twitter is that I gave threads a good long shot for like a month and I stayed almost completely off Twitter. And then the Alaska Air thing happened. And I'm an aviation geek, right? And I like to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And there was almost nothing on threads about that. 
And so I jumped back on Twitter and bam, there was all the news, right? In addition Mm. to the ads and all the crap you get on Twitter, right? But there was the news. And so I started interacting more and blah, blah, blah. And and now I'm back on it. But I'm back on it, as Charlie said, in a much less chaotic way. I mean, look, in in the height of my Twitter addiction, right, because I was I was on Twitter a lot. It was unhealthy and I was on my damn phone all the time. And that was not great. I am now on it less. I am on Twitter less and it is less all-consuming, which, as he pointed out, I think is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really engaging on Twitter anymore. Like, I'll look at it maybe a couple times a week. Um, But I'm also doing that at the same time I'm looking at Blue Sky and Mastodon, posting on any of them very rarely. Um, And it's much healthier because, I mean, I remember for a long time – Twitter was the first thing I looked at when I woke up in the morning. Oh, for sure. And, you know, when I was working abroad, it was, you know, the way to sort of figure out what was happening. But, you know, Charlie is right in that it really was kind of this echo chamber for journalists and, Mm -hmm. you know, people talking to each other and, you know (laughs) – there's there's a sort of internal thing that that used to happen at marketplace where you know when we're on deadline and we're looking for people to talk to mm-hmm. us for stories and we want real people sometimes we'd put these call outs on twitter looking for people to talk to us about whatever story we're working on but you know we sort of came to this realization that you know such a small percentage of america was on right, twitter right. even in its height right e- and of the people who were on twitter who's on twitter at like 11 o'clock in the morning, right. East Coast time, right. following a public radio reporter or someone who <laughs> follows a public radio reporter. <laughs> and you're going to get a pretty tiny uh, sample size yes, over and over again that is not at all reflective of America, right. which is why I stopped using Twitter to find sources, at least in, in that way. You can do some reverse searching sometimes. But I think journalists got very reliant on Twitter yeah. and it created these these narratives. Yeah. Like, you know, I've made a couple of passing references to sort of the the Taylor Swift thing over the last, you know, during the tour and everything. And it's not that I have a problem with Taylor Swift. I like her music. But what got me through this whole thing was the overarching narrative in the media that Taylor Swift was a universal phenomenon and that Everybody cared. Everybody was interested. And this was relevant to everyone when really this is a very specific segment of America that appeals to Taylor, that uh, Taylor Swift appeals to. It happens to be a wealthier segment of America. It happens to be a segment of America that's more plugged in to, you know, the people who make decisions in media companies. But it created this narrative that this was a big deal for the whole country when it wasn't. And that's what kind of got me about all of the coverage of Taylor Swift, not to diminish that she's an amazing uh, artist, an amazing businesswoman, and those tours made a ton of money, but it was not so relevant to everyone as was portrayed. And this siloing of conversations means that one narrative gets to be the narrative, even when it's not the national narrative. Yes. (laughs) Yes. 
And that's my rant for today. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. There you go. Anyway, let us know what you think. We're at 508-827-6278, also known as 508. You be smart. We'll be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. Okay, news. You go first. Yes. One is super wonky, but it's just something I've been kind of watching. So one of the new rules that kicked in in the new year at the federal level is uh, something related to what's called beneficial ownership. So there is a new rule that requires businesses with fewer than 20 employees to register who actually owns the company, right? And so. I'm just going to read here from CNBC. Until now, thousands of companies were registered every year under the names of hired corporate agents or attorneys for the actual owners, effectively hiding who actually controlled the companies. The new rules will make the registry, and this registry is called FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. The new rules will make the registry available to law enforcement to expedite investigations into illicit activities such as drug trafficking and tax evasion. So what does this mean? This means that millions of businesses that did that used to not have to re, you know, say who actually owned them will have to. This is supposed to go after shell companies. And the Treasury Secretary Yellen said yesterday that a uh, hundred thousand businesses have signed up for this database that collects information about beneficial ownership, and it's it's going to be really interesting to watch how well how enforceable this is, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it's businesses with fewer than twenty employees, and according to the Associated Press, this is roughly thirty two point six million companies. Now, there's a bunch of lawsuits happening. The National Small Business Association is suing over this, saying that these reporting rules are uh, invasive and violate privacy and things like that. But there's all these, you know, sort of LLCs and uh, corporations that lot, a lot of money moves through that the federal government doesn't know a lot about. And even if you're a regular person and you want to know who's behind something, you may not be able to do it. 
And this rule is supposed to change that. But I'll be very curious to see how well they can actually enforce it, because that's a lot of companies that are going to have to disclose. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so there's that. Just something I'm keeping an eye on. Have, have did you been paying any attention to that? No, not actually, not actually a whole lot at all. So it's know. so wonky and it's a little bit hard to yeah. explain. But yeah. I guess the, the the short way to say is like they're making shell companies, in theory, say who owns them. Right. <laughs> okay. Something more fun, and I saw <laughs> I get the most random stories on Pocket, uh, but this one comes from Fatherly.com. And it wow. is a story about the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Did you ever oh, yeah. read those oh, growing yeah. up? Yeah, yeah. I loved the Choose Your Own Adventure books. And anyway, it's a story about the origins of the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Headline is, 45 years ago, one kid's book series taught in a, a generation how to make bad decisions. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which is a great headline. And it talks about how the Choose Your Own Adventure books came to be, how they kind of faded away as video games became more popular, but how they're kind of coming back. Um, and there was this uh, amazing little tidbit in there that I didn't know. And let me scroll back and find it. Um, let's see. So, all right, here we go. A fortuitous mistake resulted in Bantam, the publisher, overprinting this inaugural entry. And the publisher remedied its overstock by donating 100,000 books to schools and libraries throughout America. This charitable act guaranteed their target audience would have no problem discovering the book, transforming Choose Your Own Adventure into a household name practically overnight. Hmm. Isn't that cool? Hmm. That's great. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a fun read. It's a fun read. And so yeah, that, that made me smile, even though we don't do smiles today. That's but right. we it's all good. struggle for them, so I'm taking it. <laughs> that's, that's true. Sometimes you do struggle for them. Increasingly what so you got? this year, I fear. Uh quickly, yes. an article in the Wall Street Journal today about the global automotive market for decades, 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 Japan has been the world's biggest uh, car maker, the world's biggest exporter of cars. That is no longer the case. China now exports more car than Japan more cars than Japan does 5.6 million last year to Ch- Japan's 4 million which is really interesting the the geopolitical and geostrategic part of this is that it's done it mostly by shipping cars into Russia because all the US mm. big western car makers left after the invasion and now China has sold like a half million cars there it's kind of wild and also Everybody knows China kind of leads the way in EV production, right? I mean, the United States is doing fine. Tesla, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. South Korea, a bunch as well. China makes way more, uh, specifically a brand called the BYD. But Mm. the export has been led by gasoline-powered cars because uh, electric vehicles, vehicles are not yet popular in much of the rest of the world. And I just thought that was super interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, so there you go. There you have it. It's amazing all the different ways that the war has rippled through oh the my global God, economy. Right? Totally. Right? Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. That's it for the news. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. <laughs> okay. Regular <laughs> listeners of this podcast... Go ahead. Get your chuckles out. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) Regular listeners of this podcast will know that I am not a fan of gin. I have said many times that I think gin is the devil, uh, and I have very good reason for that. Anyway, we got a message about it. 
Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is John from Oakland, California, and I wanted to talk to you about gin and how it's not the devil, but it is a bit stronger than other spirits that look a lot like gin, like vodka, for instance. So vodka is almost always 80 proof, whereas gin is almost always 88 proof. Two or three gin and tonics feels a lot different than two or three hmm. equivalent blank and tonics. Hmm. Thanks for making me smart. Also, it tastes like dirt, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> uh, I did not know that. So you definitely made me smart there, John. Thank you for that. Um, not going to sell it. Uh, look, I, I, I was at this very fancy bar here in D.C. And the wonderful bartender, James, tried to convince me that he could make a gin cocktail that I would like. And I did try it and it was okay. Um, but the single cocktail made me feel woozy. Ooh. And to be honest, I'm somebody who can handle my liquor. And so I was like, nope, not today, friend, not today. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I finished it, but then I was like, and time to go home. <laughs> yeah, it's not there, it's not there. I mean, you know, yeah. why why waste precious time and, and also money on stuff you're not enjoying, yes. right? All right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, we're going to go. Before we do, uh, we will leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, of course, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer comes to us from Farnoosh Torabi, the author of A Healthy State of Panic. Something I thought I knew but found out I was so wrong about is that being fearless is the key to success. But the way that fearlessness works is that it doesn't. The world's frightening. The world is full of uncertainty, rejection, failure. We fear because we're human and we care about consequences, risk, and protecting what we care about. And I think that's a good thing. Life's taught me that when I feel fear, don't try to be fearless. Be fear curious. Ask your fear questions like, where did you come from? What do you want me to protect? Is there something I'm missing that I need to learn? Let it be a tool for making your next move safely and with more confidence. Hmm. Hmm. Nice. Interesting. That's yeah, smart. I like that. I yeah. like that. Well, we want to hear your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Jay sneaks it in. That's right. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program, as dedicated listeners might have been able to tell, was engineered by Jay Siebold. Mason Tiguan is going to mix it down later on. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. <laughs> 